you would turn back to that passage in First Chronicles 29 in your Bibles, what would you say if you knew that you were going to die and had a chance to sum up everything that was the most important to you? That's how the best-selling book, The Last Lecture, came into existence. It had been a custom at the University of Carnegie Mellon that you could invite a professor to answer that question, and when they extended an invitation to Randy Pausch, who was the professor of computer sciences, the question for him wasn't hypothetical. It was real because he was dying of pancreatic cancer. He only had a few months to live. And so he gave this speech, which became a book, and his friends decided to put his lecture on YouTube. The uh, video lecture became viral. Millions of people have watched it. You still can to this day. In fact, ABC devoted a whole hour to telling his story. The book, uh, the last lecture, became number one on the bestseller list for a number of weeks. When he gave the lecture that day, there were 400 people there, but he made it very clear in giving it that the lecture was really only for three people, and that was his three children. And he wanted them to remember him and specific things about him. He said the speech really was his legacy to them. He began to tell in his speech about his childhood dreams and some of the goals he had in life. We might say a bucket list today. He wanted to be on zero gravity so he could float. He wanted to experience that. He wanted to play in the National Football League, which he laughed and said never happened. He authored an article in the World Book Encyclopedia, which he did, and a few other things that came to pass. He wanted his children to believe in their dreams. Randy Pausch died on July 25, 2008, at the age of 47. What would you say? What would you say this morning if you were going to die and had a chance to sum up all the things? or the one thing that was most important to you. You see, in First Chronicles 29, David is going to die soon. In fact, by the end of chapter 29, it talks about his death and a little bit of his legacy. But before he dies, he wants one thing to happen because the most important thing in David's life is God. And he wants to build a temple for God. And so he wants to build that, and so he begins to have ideas about how that can happen. But according to God's design, it wasn't for David to build the temple. It would eventually be for his son Solomon to build it. But in this prayer that David talks about the desire he has to do a work for God, God incorporates it in Scripture. In fact, David's speech went viral, if I could say it that way, in Israel. And it is still going viral today because millions of people, because God recorded it in the Bible, are still reading it, including us this morning. It is really one of his greatest legacies. And it all came about because David got a burden, and here was his burden. He looked out one day from his cedar palace, and he looked over at where the Ark of the Covenant, where God's glory presence dwelt, and God and his presence dwelt in a tent, and David dwelt in a palace. And he said, it's not right. God, who is infinitely valuable, deserves to live and be worshipped in in far more than a tent. And so he wanted 
to build it. But God said, you are a man of war and a man of bloodshed. Your son will be a man of peace. I'm going to have him build it. And so in one sense, you think that that might have been slightly disappointing for David, but it wasn't because he had a great response to it. He basically said, as you read this chapter, although I can't build it, I will help buy it. And so he starts modern language, a building project. And you can see it verses 2 and 3. We didn't read them in the chapter. But this is, no un, this is no usual building project like we might have today. This is very unusual. In fact, the Bible says that in verse, I think verse number 2, I provided for the house of my God so far as I was able, and he lists all the things. And then he says there that this is not a house for a man. This is a house for God. So David leads this raising money campaign that he is going to use to build or help build the temple for God. Now, he, the interesting thing is he doesn't get the money out of the National uh, Treasure Fund or Project Fund. It comes out of his own pocket. And you might not be moved by that. But if you read verses 3 through 5 about the gold and the silver and the bronze and the iron and the wood and the onyx and the stones and the colored stones and the precious stones and the marbles and everything that's in that, you read verse 3, and, the, and God, he dedicated all the treasure of his own house to God. Now, someone has calculated today, based on the worth of things in our day, that the silver David out of his own pocket contributed to buying the materials for the temple to be built was $450 million. And that was just the silver he gave. The gold he gave to, in that day, today would be worth $17 billion. That's quite a bit, isn't it? But his generosity, his sacrifice, really started a chain reaction of giving that would incur the single greatest love offering ever taken in one day. In one single day, what would later become known to the entire known world at that time would be called Solomon's Temple. That really wonder of the world would be paid for in one single day. I read that story and I've read intricately what the Solomon's Temple looked like and what was in it. I mean, it was about as posh as you could possibly get. How in the world did they raise that kind of money in one day? How is it possible? You see, I looked at the text. They weren't forced. They weren't manipulated. They weren't put on a guilt trip. David doesn't pray any of those things or say any of those things in his prayer. So how did God's people and David give so generously, willingly? Why would they have such a huge offering given for God's work? Now, before I answer the question, let me tell you this. You might say, why, why a message on giving right now, Pastor Walker? You know, I've looked back at my own message, messages, and I've come to the realization this is the first time in my life I've given a message on giving. <laughs> my whole life. I've, given, I've said things about it along the way. But why do that now? You know Why? Because the last two years have been a couple of the best years of offering we've ever had. December last month was the best December that I could ever recall since I've been here about how much money God's people have given to this work. So our financial situation is good. All the bills are paid and everything, we're, everything is good. So we're not asking money this morning in any special way. There's no building project coming up after the message today. I'm going to slip it in somewhere, right? 
There's no great need. We're not looking for any special great gift or offering from anybody this morning. You know what? It's good to do this message now from a platform of things going really well. You know why? Because what we need in this passage today are the principles not only for giving, but for our living. And I, I want to share them with you too because I believe, and I'm not trying to overdramatize today, that if you get these principles down, not just in your financial giving, but in your living, it can revolutionize your very life. So let me explain it to you. My main thesis today is this one statement. Giving is an identity issue. Okay? Now, that doesn't make much meaning to you at this point, but let me tell you what it means. And I'll explain it with two parts. Okay? In the text, there are two identity questions asked. Number one, who is God? This whole passage starts off in verses 10 to 20 with two little brackets, right? And they both have a double use of the word blessed. Look at verse 10. It says, therefore, bless the Lord, David, bless the Lord. And it says, blessed are you, Lord. That is a a normal rote prayer almost that starts that way. But if you look through the Psalms and read the Psalms, when people say, blessed are you, Lord, these are prayers that begin a time of worship. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, those are the way that the Bible, that's how they, they start certain prayers in the Barakot and other ways. See, this is David worshiping. He ends this passage. Look at verse 20, and he has two other times. See, he says, and all the assembly bless the Lord, and they bow their heads, and David said, bless the Lord your God. So it starts with two blessing words. It ends with two blessing words. Why? Because I want you to get this today. Listen, listen. Giving is an expression of your worship for God. It is not simply a financial duty. It is not simply you do out of an obedience to command because God says to give 10%. Listen, it is and always is and foremost is a act of worship to God. Let me say it to you this way. It is a regular way that you have to be able to communicate the infinite worth and value of God. I am convinced that God's greatness is revealed in the giving of his people. And if they gave on one day $17.5 billion in one day, you know what that says more than anything else? Not wow about the number, but wow about what the number means. The number means this is what they collectively thought of God. Listen, having two great years of giving and the last month's giving was incredible. You know what it means? It means for my heart that God's people, by and large, at Faith Baptist Church have a great view of God. See, that's how the text starts out. In the very opening verses, in verses 10 and 11 and and 12, it gives us 12, a listing of 12 different things about God's greatness. In fact, there's a little bracket there. Look at verse 11. It starts with greatness in verse And it ends with greatness. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness. And down at the end of verse 12, it says, and you, in your hand, it is to make great. God is great, and everybody who is great or has great things, it's because of him. See, it's a little bracket with, this is God's greatness. And you know why we worship him? You know why we give to him? Because he's great. 
And it spells out all the ways in his attributes and his perfections of why God is great. It's his might, it's his glory, it's his power, it's his strength. And then God doesn't just keep it to himself, he shares it with people. And listen, any greatness that you have this morning is because of him. So out of that text, we get this principle. And can I tell you, it's the crux of my message today. And I want you to practice it the rest of this year It's a very simple phrase. God owns everything. Can you get those three words into your hearts? God owns everything. Repeatedly in verses 11 and 12, and at the end of our text a little bit more, he he says phrases about God. It starts with yours. Yours is the greatness. All that in heaven and earth, listen, is yours. Yours is the kingdom. You are exalted over all. Riches and honor come from you. It's your hand. And then he says again, and your hand has done this. Do you see what he's saying? Listen, listen to what David's saying. It, it matters who's saying this about God, that he owns everything. See, David is the king of the most powerful nation in the world. And he is rich beyond any of our expectations. But in all of that, David recognizes, listen, He recognizes this. The king recognizes that he isn't the owner of it, but the king of kings is the owner of it. He realizes where the real throne is. David sits on a throne and has power and money, but you know in his prayer he realizes the real throne is in heaven and he knows who really sits on it. Because David says, you know all this money I have and all this power I have and all this authority I have and all this greatness I have? It doesn't belong to me. All of it is God's. I heard the story this week about President Lyndon Johnson during his presidency that he was going to fly to Camp David for a weekend of rest. And so a young Air Force corporal was escorting him. And when they got to the tarmac, there were about 50 different helicopters out there. So the young man thought he would be helpful and he he wanted to point out in particular, which one of those many helicopters was the president's? And he said, Mr. President, and he pointed, this is your helicopter, sir. And President Johnson, with a grin on his face, said, son, these are all my helicopters. (laughs) And I thought, you know what? That's what God really says, isn't it? God, we might say, hey, God, this is yours. This is yours. And we kind of, no, this is mine. But this is yours, And we point out, hey, God, you want to tell me what to do with that? You can't. But you know what God says? Son, it's all mine. It's all mine. See, if you get that down in your life, every single thing you have is his. Your clothes, your house, your cars, your computer, your investments, your children, your Mountain Dew. How did that get in there? Your books, your iPhone, everything. Everything that you can think of and everything you can't think of, it all belongs to God. You've heard a little phrase, haven't you? It's, it's been everywhere. What's in your wallet? That's an advertising blitz that went on TV just a few years ago by Capital One. And when they first started out that advertising blitz, the very first month, they spent $5.4 million on that first commercial series. They kept going, and by the end of the year, on that one commercial series, they'd spent $285 million on it. 
but it was worth it to them because the consumer awareness of Capital One went to 98% of people in America knew who they were. And as a result, after three years, 48 million people were using their products. All of it came down to this one little question. What's in your wallet? You see, God is asking that question this morning. And in our text, he's not only asking that question, he's actually answering that question. You know what the answer is? God's money is in your wallet. Because it's all his. It's all his. Haggai 2.8 says, God says this, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord. See, he wants you to know this morning that all the things you have and all the things that you enjoy, which are good to know, I mean, good to have, it's all great to have all those things, they belong to God. And if everything belongs to God and he owns it all, you know what it means? That I never have to worry about anything. I never have to worry about my stuff I don't ever have to worry about money. You know why? It's not mine. (laughs) It's not mine. It all belongs to him. Listen, if you want to know the key to contentment, you want to know the real key to satisfaction in your life and not get upset when someone scratched your car and your kids don't take care of stuff and they break it, listen, it isn't yours. (laughs) It isn't yours. It isn't mine. It's all his. And so let, let let God owns everything but David's not done in his prayer God not only owns everything but in the text verses 12 and 14 he says God is the giver of everything so God owns it and he gives it he's the possessor of it and he's the provider of it look at verse 12 both both riches and the results of it and honor come from you you're the originator you're the source of it verse 14 for all things come see this phrase again from you and of your own of is a preposition of source god it all comes from you we give money if you gave money online i do that if you gave it in the in the boxes out there you mail it in i want you to know whether it was a small amount a big amount it doesn't really matter what it was can i tell you this You gave God back his own. It was his money to begin with. Deuteronomy 8.18, listen to this. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you the power to make wealth. When Israel was coming into the promised land, he wanted them to know, you know the success you're going to have here, which is going to be great? You know the houses that you're going to live in that you never build? You know the cities that you're going to have and move right into that you never had to put out a finger of energy for? You know what he's saying? He goes, I gave you all of them. And the ability to have the money you have and all the things that you have come from me. Do you know what that means in our lives? Here's what it means. You don't ever have to be jealous or envious of watching someone on TV and looking at all the things they have and how nice and great and comfortable and easy their life must be because I can tell you this, they don't own those things. They're God's. You know what it also means? That everything in your life that you have comes from him. Do you have any abilities this morning? You know what? Vlot can make food awesome. God gave you that ability, brother. He did. Do you have any skills? Do you have any talents? Sandy Gutterson, Mike, and others can sing. Greg, sitting there this morning, God gave you your voice. You know that, right? You can play an instrument like Dave LaBall or Chris Carpenter. God gave you that ability. If you can play a sport 
and someone can throw a ball to you and it doesn't hit you between the eyes before you catch it? That's a gift from God. If you can do calculus and engineering or physics, number one, let me say, it's sick that you can. I can't. But if you can do all that math stuff, God gave you a mental capacity for that. See, if you're strong physically and you can lift all kinds of things and you are really in shape, you know, God gave you your body. Are you successful in business and you know how to do your job and you excel and you go way up in the company? You know who, who gave you that success and that business acumen? God gave it to you. God gave it to you. My question is, and I hope it's yours, why is the owner of everything, why does he give us all of these things? Why does he do it? So that you wouldn't just use it on you. Let me illustrate that. All the time at the church, and I'm sure around your neighborhood, Amazon delivery trucks, UPS, Federal Express, they all come around, don't they? Imagine you had a package that you were going to give to somebody, and they really needed the stuff inside that you were sending them to. They really needed it. And so the Amazon guy comes by, and you meet him out there, and you got this package, and you give it to him, and you say, please deliver this for me. So he takes the passage, gets in his truck, and you don't know it right off the bat anyways, but the guy takes your package... And after his shift is over, he drives home to his house, takes your package and keeps it and opens it up and uses it for himself. And you would say, what? You'd say, who does this guy think he is? That package was for somebody else. And this guy thinks it's just for him. And what would you say? You'd be angry. In fact, you'd say, the guy's just the middleman. It's not his. That package doesn't belong to him. I wonder if God says that. God says, listen, I have this package. It's your life. I've given you these talents. I've given you these abilities. I've given you this money. You know what? And I gave it to you so that you could use it and so that you could use it for others. But I wonder if he would say, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are that you can take the package that I gave for someone else through you and you can only use it for yourself? See, that's the identity question. Every time we give, we are answering publicly the question, who is God? And you know what our giving should say? You know who he is? He's my everything. He's of infinite value and worth. That's who he is. But that's not the only one because there's a second identity question. And that is, who am I? See, David says it. Look at verse 14. God, he says, but who am I? Who am I and what are my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? One other time in David's life recorded in the scripture, he makes this statement, who am I? In 2 Samuel 7, 18, God comes to him after a very short time of being king in comparison to his whole reign. And he says, David, I'm going to put, you're going to be my son and I'm going to be your father. In other words, David's royal line, someone from his lineage is going to be sitting on the throne of Israel in perpetuity forever. And David is astounded that God would choose him to have that kind of future, that his family, his son, and someone down the line would always be a king in Israel. And David says, God, who am I, Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? You know what David realized after he realized who God was? He came to the realization of who he was. 
See, knowing God, knowing rightly who God is, will always help you to know rightly who you are in comparison in, to that. And so here's what David says. Look at verse 29, chapter 29, verse 15. He says, God, who am I? Let me tell you, I know who we are. I look, let me look back. We are strangers and sojourners. Lord, we did not have a permanent location. We were not a people together. We did not have our own land. We did not have a temple. We did not have any of these things. We were just wilderness people. We were in the tents. We didn't have houses. We didn't have lands. We didn't have fortified cities. God, you made us a people. 29.11, you gave us the victory. When we got to the promised land, you did incredible things to bring down our enemies and their walls and their cities, and you gave it to us, all of it. You gave us the land. You gave us the strength to conquer them. You gave us houses and cities that we didn't have to work for. He says, God, we were nobodies. That's who we are. See, when you get the principle down of who God is, and in light of that, who you are, it will change your giving. It will change your giving. He says, we were nobodies. And then at the end of verse 15, he says, our days on earth like a shadow. In other words, God, we just come and we go. We're go see, we're nobodies and we're nothing. God, we are here for 70 years or so, and that is it. God, in contrast, verse 10, my father, he opens his prayer. You are forever and ever. You are eternal. See, put yourself and your life and everything you think you have in light of who he is and what he's done. And it can revolutionize how you view your life and everything in it. So who is God? He's the owner of everything. Who are we? We are the owners of nothing. So he says in verse 16, from your hand is everything and all that you own. God is the owner. We are the manager. You know what that means? Listen, it means you don't have the right to just blow your money, waste your money, and spend your money on whatever you want. God wants you to have joy. He wants you to have nice things per se, he can, you, if you can afford that. But you know what he wants more than, all, more than anything else? That you would demonstrate with your money and how you spend it his infinite value and worth. Giving, let me say it from the beginning, giving is an expression of who God is. And you know who he is? He's the owner. You know who we are? We are the managers. The last few verses, 17 to 20, David comes to the end of his prayer and he realizes something. And I want you to realize it. And he uses the word heart five times. Look at verse 7. I know, my God, that you test the heart. Have pleasure in uprightness. The upright, in the uprightness of my heart I've given these things. Keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the heart of your people. Direct their hearts toward you. Grant Solomon that he would have a whole heart. You see, here's what David says. I've been praying and I've been framing out what giving is like when you worship God. See, it says who he is and it tells you who you are. That's how they express themselves. And he says, and you know why this is so crucial? Because money is a heart test, he says. God, see, it's a test. Every time you have the opportunity to give to God, it is a test. Giving is God's test for us. How I view money, how I use money, how I spend money is a test. The way I depend on money, how much I depend on it, if I trust it, if I find my safety and security in it, 
See, the bottom line is not money as a problem. The bottom line is my heart. And David knew it. He says, I know God, and the reason we're able to give so willingly today is because we have begun to have a heart that sees you for who you are, and now in light of that, who we are. We have seen how valuable you are and how great you are, and that's not who we are. And the fact that you would know us and have us be your people blows our mind. It blows our mind. And that's, God, why we give so much. See, our money is a test that reveals and expresses where my priorities and my true values are the most. And that's why Jesus said, lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moss and rust corrupt and thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not corrupt and thieves do not break through and steal. Listen, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And David knew that. He knew that. And so God, he says, it's all yours. All of it. And God, I know who you are, and I know who I am in light of who you are, and that's why I'm giving, because I want you to know you, God, are the treasure of my heart. You are infinitely valuable. You are supreme in the affections of my heart. So what is then the number one job or goal of a manager. The goal of the manager is to use all the master's or all the boss's resources to accomplish the owner's goal for his glory. That's what it's about. So God doesn't give us what we have so we can use it just for our own benefit. Not that he wants it. We, we do that, but it's not just for that. We use it for his glory and for the good of others. And I believe that you'll never understand that, you'll never fully grasp it, and you certainly will never live like it until you get this principle down. God owns everything. If you're here this morning and you still don't believe me, I'll ask you one more question. Tell me one thing that you will own the very first moment after you die. The answer is nothing. Job said, I came into this world naked, in my mother's womb, and so I shall leave that way. Every time I go to the funeral, I look, I tell, I look into the casket and I say, see, I don't own anything. I don't own anything. Every penny I have, which will only be a couple, when I die, it'll be somebody else's. My car will be somebody else's. Someone will probably be wearing my clothes, wearing my shoes. You know why? Because they're not mine. They're not mine. See, when you stand before God, and you will, let me give you, be your financial advisor. When you stand before God, and you will, he will not ask you, what did you make? He will ask you, what did you do with the money I gave you? And you want to be answer, you want to be able to say, God, I gave and used it for your purposes for your glory, and for the good of others. If we got a hold of that this year, although things are really great right now, let me tell you, if we got a hold of that this year, there's no telling what Faith Baptist Church could do in ministry right here locally and globally around the world. It is no telling what we could do to impact lives for the kingdom and for the gospel if we come to this realization, God owns everything. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, you are forever and ever, as David said. And we can be too easily caught up as Americans to think that we own this and we own that. God, change the way we think. And in doing so, change our hearts. Lord, we own nothing. We're just managers. You're the owner. You're the ruler of everyone and everything. And we want to demonstrate your greatness. How awesome and infinitely valuable you are. And we get to do it every week. And then some. When we have a chance and opportunity and privilege to give, we get to show people how much you're worth. We communicate to you, God, and to everyone else that you're better than anything that money can possibly afford or buy. You're better than that. Psalmist says, Lord, in Psalm 63, you are better than life, therefore my lips will praise you. Oh, Father, help us. In a church that's already faithful and giving, a church that's already generous, a church that's already, even at times, sacrificial in their offerings. Father, may we be strategic, may we be frugal, may we be wise, but most of all, may we be willing to communicate the infinite value and worth that you have in all of our giving, and not just that, Master, all of our living this year, that people might know in this place that you are supreme in the affections of our hearts. And we'll bless you and thank you for all of that in Jesus' matchless name. Amen.